Welcome, everybody, to episode 13 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn. I'm here with my colleague, Bill Rogio. Bill, say hi. Hi, everyone. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defensive Democracies, and we've been running FDD's Long War Journal for what now? About 12 years, Bill? I don't even know. How 13 long. years. 13 September, years. Th- September 11th, 2007, we started the Long War Journal. Wow, it's been a long time. Um, you know, obviously the world has changed a great deal during that time, and we're recording this episode during a challenging time here in the U.S. for sure. Um, we've just lived through a couple of months of the coronavirus pandemic and the quarantines that, that came down as a result of it. Um, you know, things are starting to open back up where we live very slowly, and there's a lot of trepidation. And compounding that, of course, we have the murder of George Floyd in uh, Minnesota, which has sparked these uh, protests around the country. And then on top of the protests, we have riots and looting and all sorts of disorder. So this is a really uh, unstable, challenging time in American history. And of course, uh, as American citizens, we're, we're concerned about the direction we're going in here. And Bill and I talked about it before this episode, and Bill suggested that we talk a little bit about the U.S. military potentially being deployed into American cities to quell the riots and give his perspective on these matters. I'd like to hear that myself because I, I, I'm basically very queasy about this. How about you, Bill? I, this, is, this is not something that I really sort of am, am cheering on at all. No, I mean, look, the reality is, is if you have to deploy the U.S. military in, in American cities, then things are pretty bad. And I think the real, reality is in some cities, things are pretty bad. I don't want this. Uh, it should be nothing that this should be something that no one wants to, to do. But we have to consider, you know, restoring law and order in our cities and, and quelling these riots while allowing protests to continue. Now, it seems, I mean, hopefully as we're recording this, it seems things have calmed down a little bit and you're know, not yeah. quite at the peak. And so hopefully this won't come about. And I don't think the U.S. military um, will have to be deployed beyond the National Guard into these various cities at this point. Uh, you know, you, you have these deployments you know, in various areas and that's sort of been uneven. But um, it's uh, it seems that the worst of it, hopefully, hopefully is already peaked. But, you know, who knows? By the time this recording goes live, it could get worse again. But so what is your perspective on, you know, obviously... President Trump dangled the um, prospect of evoking the Insurrection, insurrection Act. Um, you had Senator Tom Cotton had an op-ed in the New York Times saying, sent in the U.S. military, which sparked quite a bit of backlash from New York Times reporters and a lot of people on social media. Um, I don't I don't actually agree with sending in the U.S. military at this point beyond what's being done. I don't know what your perspective is totally on where we are right now, Bill. But give us give me a little bit of your background or give us a little bit of better background. What do you think about all this? Because you had some thoughts on this. I, I were sort of out of my realm. Yeah, sure. And first, I want to say, you know, that look, the murder of George Floyd. I mean, I'm not stating anything uh, really uh, insightful here, but it's horrific and a dark day for our country. That I know video is disturbing. That video is disturbing. Yeah, I mean, highly really disturbing. disturbing. Yeah. And I hope that for a swift prosecution of not just him, but the other officers who were involved and stood there and do nothing, did nothing. Um, we oppose police brutality in every way, shape, or form. Um, we are supporters of the, of the protests, and we're talking about legitimate protests here. It, it, protest is essential to American democracy. Unfortunately, many of these protests have been beset by violence, by looting and rioting. This we do not support. So in in order to restore order in some areas, President Trump has said he's considering sending the military into the cities where chaos reigns. Um, And he would do this under the authority of what is known as the Insurrection Act. Um, Of course, this is highly controversial, um, but it's not without precedent. Um, Most recently, it was invoked by President H.W. Bush to help quell uh, the 1992 Los Angeles riots. Uh, Presidents uh, Franklin Roosevelt, Eisenhower, 
John F. Kennedy and President Johnson also invoked the insurrection acts during their presidencies. So it's not like this is coming out of left field and this is something that has been done, you know, that hasn't happened a century ago. I right? guess it would be so, out of out of not coming out of far right field, I guess, right? Was the way right the politics of the moment are working here. Yeah, that would be more accurate. Um uh you know, again, as you and I discussed, this this makes me very uneasy. Um, it, it, deploying the U.S. military should always be the last uh, resort. And the question we have is, have we reached that point where where this deployment is needed? Um, you know, look, the re- I think that the, the reaction of the of many mayors and governors is, uh, or lack of reaction has been shocking. Um, the security and safety of their cities and the protection of, of their citizens and private property should be paramount. Can I tell you, um, you know, we, we, I live not far from New York City, and I can't tell you how many texts I've gotten from friends just asking basically WTF when it comes to de Blasio, Mary yeah. de Blasio's reaction to this. Because I don't think he, he – this is sort of out of his depth handling this sort of situation, obviously. Um, and you can even see that Governor Cuomo here in New York has objected to sort of de Blasio's mishandling of all this. So it's, it's, just, a, it's just a nightmare, basically, um, you know. All the way around. I mean, to see to see stores up and down Fifth Avenue and all these locations be boarded up because they can't can't stay open, can't be protected, and they're worried about you know millions of dollars of property damage, and that's a big deal. And you've also seen in St. Louis, I think it was, where a former police chief or a former police officer was, I forget yes. which was was murdered, killed, murdered, guarding yep. a, a you know an African American, by the way, uh, murdered guarding a, a pawn shop. You know, this is this violence is just out of control. Now, I, I get. Or has been anyway. I get um, the desire for law and order, but talk a little bit about you know how you would see the, the proper role of the U.S. military in these situations and the improper role of them, Bill. Yeah, and so and the reality is, when you call out the National Guard, you're deploying. You know, the the, the lines between the National Guard, which are the state military, and the active duty military are it's it been blurred very much over the last uh, I would say half a century. Um, you know, look, I served in both the, the United States, in the U.S. Army, which is, the, of course, federal, as well as the, in the New Jersey National Guard. So I have experience with both. And I was a signalman and an infantryman in, um, in, in the New Jersey National Guard and in the Army. So I, I, have a, I also have some experience with doing riot control drills, not in, in a active, actively doing it, but drilling with the New Jersey National Guard as well. And, and the reality is, so... We have deployed the United States military here. So the question is, is are we going to deploy the U.S. Army? All right. We're, you know, we have the Guard deployed. That's, that's the real question here. Um, the reality is, is the U.S. Army is probably better equipped to handle this mission um, than the New Jersey, Na- or the, not the, sorry, not just the New Jersey National Guard here, but the, the, every state's National Guard. National Guard trains one weekend a month and then two weeks during the year. The U.S. military is on active duty. There's a lot of still a lot of um, uh, experience in dealing with uh, with uh, problems in inside cities based on U.S. Uh, particularly in uh, the U.S. Uh, counterterrorism operations in Iraq. And let me be clear, we're not conducting a counterterrorism operation inside U.S. cities. Um, but you you, ha- you have an ex- you have a, a understanding of working and dealing with local populations and dealing with violence inside cities. So um, with minimal training, I think the the U.S. Army can be 
uh, used effectively. They're also the U.S. The U.S. Army has greater resources as well than the the National Guard. So how how would you deploy them, right? So look, where I think where we see in a lot of the riots and and the looting are obviously taking place in. Uh, business district. So, you know, I, I, it just shocked me. I live outside of Philadelphia. I live in New Jersey, fortunately, near the sticks, uh, right on the edge of a, a, a large state forest. But, you know, I'm very familiar with Philadelphia. My family, my whole family is from there. I spent most of my childhood inside Philadelphia. And as soon as this started, I, I say to myself, all right, you know, look, if I'm mayor of the city, I'm going to secure the, you know, center city, old city, you know, because you know where the rioters going to go, where you know they're going to go loot the big, the stores down Walnut and Chestnut Street. And, and, you know, there's a, it's, it's pretty simple to figure it out what you need to secure. Um, The neighborhoods can take care of themselves, particularly with police and, and um, support of the, of the troops. But that's, you know, generally that's not where a lot of the problems are happening. Some problems are happening or it is spilling over into areas into um into residential areas but you know if you if you take away the mob's ability to burn stores loot and loot burn and loot the stores you know you're taking away a lot of their of their fuel of of fueling this and at the same time you have to allow the legitimate protest that's a very fine act it's a balancing act for for any military force and i want to be very clear i want to restate this after saying all of that U.S. military should not be deployed, whether national, federal military, U.S. Army, or National Guard should not be deployed into inside U.S. cities unless absolutely necessary. I think in some of these, in some cities where the violence has been out of control, we probably have reached that, and and I so I don't say that lightly. Yeah, and again, I'm hoping that at the time has come that this is now yes. this is not is not out of control anymore. I'm hoping that we've sort of passed the uh, worst of it. Um, you know, now I, I mentioned briefly. You know, Senator Tom Cotton send uh, filed a op-ed or published an op-ed for the New York Times on June third, and the, the title of it was "Tom Cotton Send in the Troops: The Nation Must Restore Order, the Military Stands Ready." And um, you know, basically, you know, this instantly became controversial because um, a lot of, including New York Times reporters, objected to this op-ed being published. Um, there was this sort of anger and outrage as being published. Um, you know. You and I thought this was what was interesting about this, and I don't, I don't even agree with all the op-ed, of course. Um, but what you and I thought was interesting was that this op-ed was published, and some people pointed out on Twitter accurately, you know, an op-ed attributed to Siraj Akani, which we've labeled disinformation, and we say attributed because you know who knows who actually wrote it. I think the verbiage is sort of beyond his level of understanding in English, certainly. Um, but Siraj Akhani is the number two of the Taliban, the deputy emir of the Islamic Emirate, U.S. and U.N. designated terrorist, a guy who runs a network that's been in bed with al-Qaeda since the 1980s. Um, you know, this they run this, the New York Times runs that one, and there's really no, no reaction whatsoever. It's sort of ho-hum, nobody really cares. Now, obviously part of it makes sense because you're talking about matters here at home, domestically in the U.S., so it's going to be heightened attention. Our pol- political system is highly divided right now, and any sort of rumblings in one direction or another are going to uh, sort of it's like throwing gasoline on the fire at this point this type of op-ed um, in terms of how things are how things are, are working unfortunately in the, the discourse but it is it is interesting how muted the reaction was to this piece of nonsense that was rep- published in Siraj Akhani's name and is totally contradicted by all of his behavior and a mountain of facts and the reaction to the Tom Cotton op-ed I mean the, the U.S. senator publishes an op-ed 
and this is you would think this was sort of some sort of authoritarian act or uh, you know cre- uh, creeping totalitarianism but you know a, a legitimate totalitarian publishes in the pages of the of the New York Times and nobody blat- bats an eye really yeah it, it it is amazing that an elected official of the United States government is treated far worse than a specially designated global terrorist such as Siraj Akani. And look, it's not like Cotton was arguing to send in the troops with gun blazing. Nobody is asking for that. No one wants that. It's the last thing that's desired. Look, the reality is, is the people who are losing their homes and their businesses are people that are living in these neighborhoods. And I don't know if most people realize this, but insurance companies are not going to reimburse um, the businesses that lose their that are burned down or or looted, they're not going to be reimbursed because insurance policies will not cover um, acts of civil disobedience or rioting. It's just not part of insurance policies unless you play pay a ridiculous premium. Uh, you're not going to get that. So this is this is destroy, just the the I mean, aside from the the violence against individuals, the act of the destruction of property and of businesses. People are going to lose their livelihoods for this because because uh, because the mob, is, you know, believes that they have the right to go wild in the cities. Some it, look, law and order has to be restored again. I can't reiterate this enough. The safety uh, and security of American citizens and their property should be paramount. Anything, everything else is secondary. Yeah, well, again, I mean, I know this is probably a third or fourth time I've said this, but hopefully we've, we've passed that uh, the critical peak yes. moment, and uh, this is going to be no, this is going to be necessary going forward. Of course, there's all sorts of back and forth now with Secretary of Defense Esper and the President and others about all these issues, and it's just sort of a, a big mess. And I, all I know is I'm I'm legitimately concerned about the future of my country. You and I have seen a divided country for a long time. I think that the uh, American elite, so to speak, seem to really have misgivings about their own country, and some of them even have a hatred for their own country. There's a there's a lot of uh, 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 terrible uh, curriculum being installed in terms of telling and teaching, you know, a very poor version of American history, a very myopic and distorted version of it. Um, I I don't know. I think that we're in trouble. Of course, America has a lot of problems and is far from perfect and has a it's all sorts of uh, you know problematic episodes throughout its history, of course. But the idea that it's implicitly evil or inherently Ill- illegitimate, which seems to be now a growing notion from people on the hard left, uh, really is disturbing because th- that basically doesn't leave you with much of room to basically move going forward and trying to find some sort of political common ground. I would say. Um, yeah, Tom, I, I I like you do. I fear for the future of our country. Watching this um, all unfold for our children or and future grandchildren, you know, for all of our our citizens, this is just highly disturbing to watch this. And um, I do hope that uh, cooler heads will prevail in, in the very near. Yeah, I just say one other thing about the the murder of George Floyd. What I what I think is being lost here is that there's really a widespread condemnation of this. Nobody is actually saying this is legitimate or was justified yeah. or, or anything. I mean, I, you know, I, I, in fact, I don't even, nobody put aside any questions about George Floyd himself personally, because who cares? The point is whatever George Floyd was doing in life, he didn't deserve this, right? I mean, that's the point that we could see on, on, on camera, you know? I mean, I, I saw some you know, some hard right people trying to take swipes out, but that's sort of minimal on Twitter. I think the mainstream, the critical mass of people in the U.S. are are fully sympathetic to Floyd's case and, and condemn his murder and think this is outrageous. And so I'm a little perplexed by the the 
direction of some of the protests and certainly by the riots in the name of something that really nobody's standing up for, nobody credible anyway, you know? Yeah, it, it's stunning. I, I think that we a lot of this is being manipulated for, um, you know, other purposes. And there's there's certainly a faction of the hard left. And I'm not even sure if that even is, is even the left when it goes so far left uh, that, you know, is really, you know, just seeking to stoke violence and, and um, anarchy in, in American cities. And uh, it's, again, it's, it's very disturbing. You know, this isn't something... Every single person I've spoken to has condemned this in the the greatest of terms, um, you know. And look, this is this didn't happen in the heart of you know Dixie, America. This happened in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So people really need to think long and hard about you know what your how you know where and how this happened and who's responsible for this. Well, you know, the other thing, of course, is not not just the hard left. We've seen some indications of the far right basically trying to capitalize yep. on this as well too. So you know, basically. I just hoping that cooler heads prevail as, as you are as well. But let's move on. We're going to talk. You know, the other thing, and this is a very unpopular thing I'm about to say, and this is I'm probably hanging myself with my own words here for any future sort of uh, <laughs> life. But you know, we've documented sort of the U.S. military's performance abroad in different theaters, and that's not really. Um, you know, certainly we're sympathetic to the to the, the common enlisted service members and those who are who are doing the job on the ground. But the leadership has really lacked lacked really in U.S. military ranks for many years. Um, and that's something I, I had some misgivings about here too. You know, I mean, we, we, you look at, we're going to talk about Afghanistan again shortly here. And with, you see the stunning lack of leadership, in, you know, when it comes to the longstanding Afghan war, um, you know, it, it doesn't bode well for being able to handle sort of any of these situations well either, I think, you know, I, I mean, that's sort of a very unpopular thing for me to say probably, but I don't really care as you know. No, uh, listen, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, you know, we look, we've discussed this with the so-called, give it to China. Can we trust the people who lost Iraq and Afghanistan to lead us in a conflict against China or against Russia or in dealing, you know, with very serious problems here at home? You know, I mean, if if I had, you know, my greatest misgiving about deploying the U.S. military to to U.S. cities might be the actual leadership. And I'm not talking about you, captains, to, to colonels, I know you guys are, you know, you guys know how to do your job, but I'm talking about our generalship, our, our you know, our stars. They're just, they have proven time and time again that they're incapable of properly handing, handling complex situations. Amen. Uh, you know, again, that's not winning us any points in DOD, but again, we don't really care. Um, let's go on. It's not where we're here yeah, for exactly. Them. So let's go on. Let's talk about Afghanistan again, because you know, as uh, the week leading up to recording this, there was a new report by the UN, um, the Analytical Support and Sanctions Monitoring Team, which is led by Edmund Fitton Brown, released a report on the Taliban in Afghanistan um, and what's going on there and the situation there. Um, and, and the report, of course, is very inconvenient for the State Department, the Trump administration, and advocates for the February 29th withdrawal deal in Doha. Why is it inconvenient? Because it's littered with references to the ongoing partnership between al-Qaeda and the Taliban. I mean, just littered with it. Um, and, of course, Taliban apologists aren't going to like this. And some of the, you know, you get people who don't really know anything about this relationship who are going to take swipes at it real quickly uh, you know, on Twitter and that kind of thing. But we've got a lot of reporting. And I wanted to give one background story here, Bill, because it's something you and I have dealt with when it, when it comes to this report. You know, Kim Dozier of Time, who we have a lot of respect for, um, actually asked um, Suhail Shaheen, the Taliban spokesman, about uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri's buyout, the oath of allegiance to Habatul al that's the current emir of the Taliban. And you and I have argued that 
if you're going to pitch this idea that the Taliban Al Qaeda Taliban is really going to break with Al Qaeda and renounce Al Qaeda, well, it starts with a very clear disavowal of Al Qaeda by Al Qaeda of Zawahiri's buyout, oath of allegiance to him. This is a very easy thing for them to do, right? This is something that's just simple, right? It's you, you know they release statements in multiple languages every day. They can easily release a statement. Just that's a good starting point. A good uh, if you want to uh, put it in the parlance of the peace processors, it's a good confidence building measure, right? For the on the U.S. side, <laughs> right? Uh, well. Of course, Akhazad has done no such thing. Um, but Dozier asked Suhail Shaheen about Ayman al Zawahiri's bayat to both Habatul Akhazad and his predecessor, Mullah Mansour. And Suhail said, oh, no, uh, you know, the, the Taliban, neither one of those Taliban emirs accepted the bayat, accepted the oath of allegiance from Zawahiri. Now, uh, you and I know that's a lie, and we know that's a lie because we took screenshots and took and PDFs and screen captures of the day when Mullah Mansour, who was the previous emir of the Taliban, he was the emir of the Taliban up until um, from officially the emir of the Taliban from some mid 2015 to 2016 when he was droned to death by the, the Obama administration in Pakistan, um, and. We know in 2015 when he was named, formally named as the emir, overall emir of the faithful of the Taliban, that when Zawahiri swore his allegiance to him, that Mansour publicly accepted it because he, the Taliban published a big speech by Mansour accepting all the allegiances to him, including from Zawahiri, especially from Zawahiri. He was the first one he named. And Mansour was a Talib, was an Al-Qaeda fanboy himself. He referred to bin Laden and, and Zawahiri in, his, in one of his speeches as the heroes, the Mujahideen heroes of, of this era, or the heroes of this Mujahideen era. I forget the exact phrasing, but heroes nonetheless. Um, and here's Suhail Shaheen lying about this, saying that neither one of them accepted it. And of course, you remember what happened, Bill, when we reported that, that Mansour had accepted publicly Zawahiri's allegiance. Yeah, thank goodness we took screenshots of it because shortly after we reported it and then it was repeated, um, the Taliban took it down um, because it didn't make them look good because at the time, you know, they were – look, the Taliban had played a very clever game in hiding its ties with al-Qaeda because if it wants to cut a deal with the United States, it can't look to be the Taliban's ally. I'm sorry, yeah, with al-Qaeda's ally. Yeah. Um, and someone in Voice of Jihad slipped up. and But look, they published the speech in English. They wanted it out there. Um, but then they got cold feet with it. So well, they, we, I they find got that cold feet with it because we caught them. I mean, remember we didn't even we, because we yeah we didn't we report yep. that that day. It was like a day or two later that we reported on it. Yeah, and it was only then that they took it down because they realized that people in U.S. Intel and the military read our site, read long FD's Long War Journal, and they realized, uh oh, you know, we don't want this out of the bag. But you know, listen, we didn't. Muhammad Sword already. Um, shown himself to be an Al-Qaeda fanboy anyway. And this was a speech in, that he wrote. And it was his his name. It wasn't like some sort of minor little statement or some sort of little quip or some sort of, oh, yeah, yeah, I accept that allegiance. No, no, this was a big, long sort of, um, you know, ideological screed that was pub- that he published. And, you know, they got embarrassed by it because we pointed it out. And it, it sort of, it was a good example of the mass slipping. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And look, Suhail Shaheen, that the Taliban's, Spokesman for its Doha office is a—he's a, a uh, serial liar. This is the guy. Yeah, he doesn't like us, by the way. Like, which, who cares? You know, pound, go, oh, yeah. I know that. Yeah. So I actually um, was on a panel which he was—he he joined in late. Uh, it was for the in, in, Indian uh, think tank called the Global Counter Counterterrorism Center, and he joined in, and I I jumped him. I I'll be honest with you. I asked him about Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. He denied that Al Qaeda was even there. 
And then when Which I, only when the I most credulous Taliban apologists would accept that, right? I mean, there's plenty, there's plenty right. of evidence that they're still, right. still there, including what, recently, you know, right now. You know, when I cited some evidence, he just called it American propaganda. Yeah, sure. So uh, I have this on video. Unfortunately, the video is just so bad and so poor that I, I just never got it out there. Um, I, I may reconsider that. But uh, and he also told, I believe it was CBS News, was it last July? Um, yeah. That. He wasn't even sure that the that Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda were behind 9/11. Yeah. So I mean, this is we don't know. We don't you know. know. This, I mean, this is who, but this is the gaslighting now that we're dealing with, where we have you know characters like this guy who has a prolific Twitter account, who now we're supposed to treat as credible and as some sort of honest broker and all this. I mean, this is ludicrous, you know. And this is part of what this whole process has done is it's it's sort of granted a, a veneer or some legitimacy to this guy and the, the people around him when, you know, they're obviously couldn't tell the truth, of, you know, if, if their lives depended on it, you know, about this stuff. Um, you know, yeah, Tom, you and I are, 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 are depicted as warmongering anti-peace yeah only a few people only, to, to be, be fair happy. only a few people no. do pe- do, i mean suhail shaheen suhail shaheen would like to depict this that way sure you know you know so tell right. my apologies but, with, suhail, you know, but not, not not many people that do for, that for reporting on the taliban's own yeah. words i mean really literally for reporting the taliban's own words whereas someone like suhail shaheen the u.s government the u.s state department and government will talk to him when he's lying to their faces so Look, I mean, I yeah, it's maybe some, but it's and enough. again, we you know, and we certainly hear again, it. Again, you and I made it very clear, right? I mean, it's something very simple that the Taliban can do here. What can they do? They can issue a statement in Akhazad's name. Now there are rumors that he's got COVID nineteen and he's sick. Some even were saying he's dead. Of course, we know the whole sordid tale there. Of the uh, the Taliban hiding Mullah Omar's death for two years. So who the who the hell knows what Akhazad's status is right now? Um, nobody outside of his inner circle probably does. But they they could at yeah. least have a statement in Akhazad's name as a first step here, as a confidence building measure, saying I formally disavow Ayman al Zawahiri's bio oath of allegiance to me and deem it uh, you know illegitimate. That's a and, and decline it. That's a very simple thing for them to do. And if, um, you know, if there was something other than just credulity and um, just blind obfuscation, sort of just nonsense underlying this whole process, that's something the State Department would have demanded be done um, and would have and moved forward there. Maybe they did demand it would be done. This, this report that came out that we talked about last time from the Inspector General's office, um, uh, you know, that documented the fact that the State Department said that the Taliban is, is uh, reluctant to publicly break with al-Qaeda. You know, it seems like the State Department did try to get the Taliban to, to publicly issue some sort of statement along these lines. And, of course, they didn't, which tells you a lot, right? I mean, this is very—this isn't hard stuff, folks. This isn't rocket science. If you're going to tell me the Taliban is breaking with al-Qaeda, well, let's start with a basic statement saying that. Let's start from there. Yeah, it really is that simple. I mean, either—and then people say, well, they're doing it secretly. Privately, yeah. How do you secretly break—privately, yes. How do you privately break with al-Qaeda? Is that the— I mean, that doesn't even make sense, yet people repeat this uncritically. And uh, it's, it you know, it should offend all our sensibilities. And um, look, yeah, I think I said blind obfuscation. I meant mindless obfuscation because it is mindless <laughs> obfuscation. You know, that's what it is. It's just, you know, just nonsense. And again, U.S. can just get out without doing all this. So it doesn't really yeah. make sense. Hey, hey Tom, so the, the report uh, said the, that uh, Hamza bin Laden and al-Qaeda was getting assurances um, from the Taliban in the spring of 2019. Tell us, uh, give us more detail on that. What did, what did that cons- how did that uh, work out for them? Well, you know, we, we, what we love about this now, of course, you know, the thing about this report is, and you see some people questioning on Twitter and stuff um, coming out from this UN monitoring team. Um, look, I mean, it, it cites all these member states um, 
you know, these the, the, basically the sources are unknown. We don't really know how they're getting this information or where they're getting it from exactly. We know they're getting it from UN member states. It means you and I can't corroborate it. We're very upfront about that. We say that in our reporting on it. Um, it doesn't mean there's nothing there, and it doesn't mean you get to assume that this is wrong, right, which is what some people want to do. They want to say, well, you can't corroborate. That means it's wrong. That's logically uh, fallacious. Um, the truth is that we don't know really precisely where it's coming from. We question some parts of the report, reporting ourselves at times, for, for sure. But they're getting it from somewhere, and this is either true or wrong, right? It's either true or false. This happened, and we, we're pressing for more information about all this stuff. But the bottom line is, is there is a lot of mystery surrounding the last year or two of Hamza bin Laden's life. You'll remember that it was in the summer of 2019, the U.S. intelligence officials told the press that he was dead, that he died. Didn't really explain how or where, but just said he was dead. Then in September 2019, the White House released a statement saying that Hamza was dead. Again, the statement, as we wrote up a long war journal at the time, um, didn't say exactly where. It was just referenced the Afghanistan-Pakistan region. Okay. I mean, just think about that, Bill. Afghanistan-Pakistan region. I mean, okay, guys. You know what I mean? Really? You know, that's not exactly precise, is it? You know, And why can't they they tell us, Tom? Why exactly can't they say where he was? Let's face it. If he was killed in Afghanistan, we'd know district and province. Just saying. Right. So they they wouldn't say where. Um, they wouldn't say when, right? So we don't know when he exactly died. I mean, there's there's a couple different competing theories I've heard about that. Um, I don't know what the truth is, and I'm saying I don't know what the truth is. Um, but you know, the, the statement also alluded to the fact that, or didn't even allude, just outright stated that Hamza bin Laden was in charge of coordinating with other groups in the region uh, on behalf of Al Qaeda, and that he was responsible for this. Um, but didn't name the groups, didn't say what those groups were. Well, isn't that suspicious, right? Isn't, isn't that curious that they couldn't even tell us who exactly he was working with? And of course, we've heard from sources for years that he was working with the Afghan Taliban, and that's why they didn't want to say it. But now here comes this UN report, and the UN says that Hamza personally met with the Taliban delegation in the spring of 2019 to get assurances that no matter what was in the deal with the U.S., they weren't going to betray al-Qaeda. The Taliban wasn't going to betray al-Qaeda for any price. That's what the reporting says. Well, aha, look at that. Now, here's the question, right, Bill? Um, the Secretary Pompeo and uh, Special Representative Zalmay Kalilazad, do they know about this intelligence? Do they think it's wrong? Um, is it wrong? You know, Or do they? does U.S. intelligence think that this actually took place? And if it did take place, um, then what does that say about the agreement that was signed in Doha and the credulity and the, the, the complete lack of um, skepticism by some of our leadership on all this? Yeah. And, and, you know, one point I'd like to make, I mean, if the Taliban was going to break with Al Qaeda, then, as we said, there'd be evidence of this. Right. We'd see it. So this report tells us that Hamza bin Laden has been assured by the Taliban that they're not going to break. Well, I haven't seen a public statement saying that they were the Taliban's going to break. So what am I to believe? Does this I mean, look. Again, we don't know. Um, look, I'm going to say something else. We often read press reports quoted quoting unnamed U.S. or foreign intelligence officials, and people people re- treat those press reports as highly credible. So, what makes this any more or less credible? The UN inf- report, you know. So, it, it's, you have to assess it like that. But as far as yeah, and by know, the way, I don't think Edmund Fitton. Fitton Brown and his team are just looking to throw anything into this report, right? I mean, they're trying I, to, you know, I mean, we yeah. don't agree. We don't agree with all the reporting either. Nobody's perfect, you know, but I don't think that they just made this up out of thin air. And, you know, I mean, somebody told them this, you know, but again, we can't corroborate. We don't know exactly how it took place, you know, but we don't find it to be that out of bounds that this happened. It's, I mean, it's not, it's, you know, it's not like an alien, not like they're saying there's an alien invasion and the, you know, Taliban's bodies were inhabited by peaceful men or something.
thing. You know, I mean, that's basically, you know, what we're led to believe now. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, you know, it, you know, it's not like they claim something outrageous like that from the, like the Taliban apologists would say. Right. I mean, right. It's, it's so. You, you know, look, it, it gets back to we have to look at the do the actions match the words. The uh, what I see is I see this as being consistent, you know, with what is happening. And does that mean it's true? I can't say that, but I don't think it's I don't think it's beyond the the realm of the reasonable. So it certainly, what's makes interesting about this two bill? What's interesting about this two bill is both you and I heard from separate sources before this, and it, I think this was before the spring of twenty nineteen, long before. Yeah, that Hamza was working with the Afghan Taliban and had yep. already we'd heard rumblings from our sources that he had met with Taliban officials about the talks with the U.S. before all this. So I, I'm i curious as to, to know what the whole stream of intelligence really would be on this. And the bottom line is that the reason why we can't know is because it could come from intercepts. Um, it could come from human sources. Oh, maybe that's unlikely. You know, you know, spies, maybe. Um, I Probably doubtful. Um, uh, could come from detainees, guys who are in detention. Could come from files that were recovered because, of course, you had September 2019, you had that raid in Helmand where, yep. um, you know, Al Qaeda was being harbored by the Taliban, you know, in Musakawa. And, you know, Asim Amar was killed along with his courier, was going back and forth to Zawahiri. Maybe there's some documentation. Who knows? I mean, you know, I don't know. I'm just speculating here. But the point is, there are a lot of ways there could be sources for this that they don't want to explain what they are. If they were documents, they should release them. But other, other types of sources can be um, problematic in terms of releasing them. So who knows? But there's another piece of evidence along these lines in the report too, right, Bill? I mean, is this um, report that Ayman al-Zawahiri himself, the old man himself, Ayman al-Zawahiri, met with an Akani delegation in February 2020, so February of this year, right before the deal in Doha was signed. And he too got assurances from the Akani saying, you know, we're good, of course, and this is a long-standing relationship and we're not going to really break with you guys. And of course, one of the guys who supposedly met with Zawahiri is known as Yaya Hakani, who's the brother-in-law of Siraj Hakani. And Yaya, we've known him, about him for years. I mean, he's a known, yeah. li- he's a known liaison to Al-Qaeda. We report on him multiple times. It's not designated, especially designated yeah. global terrorist with the, as, a, as a liaison to Al-Qaeda. Yep, absolutely. So it's not implausible whatsoever that he would meet with Zawahiri, although it's, it's interesting and again we can't corroborate or verify this took place but you know isn't this the type of thing if Zawahiri really did hold this meeting if the U.S. was really invested in this war effort and it isn't and this is part of what you and I have talked about for so long now if it was really invested in this war effort wouldn't this have been pointed out by U.S. officials wouldn't the U.S. military have trumpeted this wouldn't um, somebody in leadership have explained that this was going on and the point is is that the U.S. contrary to what some people think Big DOD, U.S. leadership—they don't want to be in this war, right? They don't want to—they don't want to be fighting here anymore in Afghanistan, which is part of the reason why you and I can't call for Americans to fight in, against known enemies of the U.S. when their own leadership doesn't really want them fighting, yeah. you know. Um, and so this is the point, right? Is that this type of intelligence, which is very inconvenient for the whole process here, for the whole story of the end of America's presence in Afghanistan? You know, the Americans never trumpeted this. It came out sort of sideways in this UN monitoring group report. Um, that uh, basically the U.S. officials aren't even commenting on. They're not. They're they're they haven't denied anything in this report. They're just doing their best to ignore it because it. If this information is true, it paints a horrible picture about their efforts to negotiate uh, to, with the with the Taliban and adhere to a deal. I mean, you this right here is evidence, direct evidence, if true, that that the Taliban Al Qaeda relationship is as strong as ever. And that the Taliban, while it was saying one thing to the United States, was going behind its back and, and assuring 
the group that attacked America on 9-11 and has been fighting the United States since. That By would the be, way, of course, Al-Qaeda. And yes, go ahead, Tom. I was just going to ask you, you know, when it comes to Zawahiri, did you download, I downloaded these, the, uh, you know, it's always curious what Asahab decides to, you know, we spend a lot of time translating different stuff, but um, sometimes Asahab, which is the central uh, Al-Qaeda propaganda arm or media arm, will translate stuff in English. It's always curious to me what they decide to translate in English. And one of the things they translated in English recently were these long screeds by Zawahiri, a two-part screed against atheists. Like, you know, yes. all this all this warfare is going on. There's the negotiations in Doha, war fighting, all this craziness with COVID-19. You know, you have ISIS, the ongoing challenge from ISIS to Al-Qaeda's authority and everything. And what does Zawahiri take the time to do? The old man takes the time to sit down and record a lengthy screed about the problems of atheists. And you get a you get a, an incredible um, diatribe against uh, you know philosophy, Western philosophy, and he's lamenting dialectical materialism. I mean, I felt like this was a nightmare. I felt like I was back in a in a, a undergrad college philosophy class or something. You know, listen to it, watching this, and you know, I'm watching it. And I'm like, why the hell did Asahab decide to translate this into English? I mean, who's what's yes. the English? What's the English audience for this? English speaking well, audience for this? You know, I don't I don't know. I mean, I still don't know after all these years of covering it. But here it is, and they they put this stuff out. And there's so many other things you would think would be more important, and yet, but they thought this was a real winner, or at least the old man did, Zawahiri did, right? He thought this was a real winning lecture, you know? We always joke that he's the, the Fidel Castro of, of terrorists. He'll be standing up and giving that speech for hours upon hours while the crowd's falling asleep, and he's just the energizer bunny of, of, uh, of dictators, right? So that, that, that was always my impression of Zawahiri. We, we joked about that privately. Yeah. And yeah. It, it, I, look, I think the guy has his tics and he just has to get it off his chest. I, I remember there was a time where it seemed like they had him under control and they had his speeches. Remember this? Yeah. Yeah. Like they, I think I, remember, nice I wrote up in a piece saying it looked like they got an editor to cut him down to five minutes. Yeah. Like, I'm right? going to come in. Right. And, it, and you could just see, yeah, we imagined the whole scene, right? Where he's sitting down in the studio for Asahab and he, the guys are like, all right, now. Uh, shake you're gonna you're gonna keep this uh to five minutes right five minutes five minutes right not not 50 not five hours five minutes you know now i mean the other thing is you know you always see people say well he lacks the charisma of osama bin laden which is which is true you know but you know i mean he, he's got a whole different game going right i mean the reason why for him he's he's invested in these arguments with the a lot of these islamic clerics that don't agree with him that it rejects al-qaeda and his uh, vision of the ideology and vision of religion of course version of the religion um, he, uh, you know, he's trying to argue with all those people. He's trying to argue with the West. He's trying to argue with all stuff. I think, I mean, I've always thought he's highly intelligent. He's just a crank and he basically goes on and on and on and on about this stuff. And of course he still survived all this. And, and if, and if the UN report is true, you know, while, you know, Zalme Kolozad and Mike Pompeo are vouching for the Taliban, he's meeting with the Haqqanis who are saying, yeah, don't worry about it. We're all good. You know, I mean, yeah, and one more thing about this meeting. And I, I completely agree, Tom. Where did this meeting take place? Well, I know. Anyway. Right, right. Right? Well, probably so our, someone know, probably knows, and gee, I have a suspicion that it wasn't in Afghanistan. That's just me. Um, maybe just the, we'll just call it the Afghanistan-Pakistan region and leave it at Yeah, that. right. Yeah, just like the White House statement on Bin Laden, Hamza Bin yep. Laden's death. Exactly. Yeah, we'll, just, we'll just put it in the region somewhere. Um, yeah, somewhere in the region. Yeah, but you know, the report, what I thought about the UN report was there was a good summary from one member state that was explaining 
that the relationship between the Taliban and al-Qaeda isn't just an institutional relationship, but actually is very personal. I mean, it involves intermarriage. It involves the al-Qaeda being embedded within the Taliban, holding you know training positions, uh, religious indoctrination positions, and, and other things along those lines. And that's we've documented that for years. There's all sorts of evidence that that's true. And that, that's, that's the big part here, is that if for people that think that they're just going to negotiate or get the Taliban to easily break with al-Qaeda, you have to deal with these very thorny, complex, intertwined relationships that uh, nobody really ever accounted for. And I think that's, we think that that's the big story of the Afghan war that people probably miss. The biggest part of it is that the U.S. lost sight of who they were fighting long ago. And, and really, there's no understanding of this to this day. Outside yeah, of this I report. Mean, yeah. I, 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 the U.N., we, we got to tip our hats to that U.N. monitoring team. That is, it is a fantastic report that um, I think really tries to make an effort to, to 19 years later when everyone else is tuned out and no one seems to care who our enemy is, enemies are in Afghanistan. Um, the well, U.N. I mean, is you know, still trying to get it right. Well, I mean, let's just say this. I mean, they the the political winds or the policy winds are not going in the direction of this report. I mean, whether you agree whether the contents of the report are accurate or not, in some cases we can verify the details, um, for sure. Other cases, like we've been talking about here, we can't, right? But whether the details are right or not, they're reporting this stuff in a way that goes against the grain, right? Goes yeah. against what what people want to hear. Certainly against what the U.S. wants to hear. This isn't, you know, whether I mean, I'm sure that some of this intelligence is probably coming from the U.S. for sure, but. It isn't coming from U.S. leadership that's invested in getting out and, and, and whitewashing the Taliban. It's certainly not coming from them. You know, I mean, it's certainly not coming from big DOD or State Department. You know, um, they just want out. So, yeah, Edmund Fitton Brown and, and your team, we have to welcome you to the very, very small tent of the minority report. You know, you are, you know, it's it's now a table with three seats in it. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sure that Suhail Shaheen and his crew don't like you for it. So. You know, <laughs> that's a yeah. that's a badge of honor, really, you know, it, it um, truly is. But, you know, there was another thing in the report you wrote up, Bill, about the thousands of Pakistanis fighting in Afghanistan. And again, you know, we can't verify the actual number. I think it was what up to four thousand to sixty five hundred or something like that. What was the number? Something like that. Yeah, they, they said between six thousand and sixty five hundred. Yeah, I'd okay, actually, Tom, honestly, I'd, I'd, I'd say this number is probably low. Um, yeah, and this is one only, of the problems with this report and this accounting is that we, we say these numbers, nobody really knows about these numbers, right? I mean, nobody knows how many fighters these guys have. Th- this isn't criticism, by the way. This no. is just, this is just my problem. view on it. We have to, we have to remember that that, that Duran line uh, between Afghanistan and Pakistan is not recognized by the Pashtuns living along that border. So it's awfully difficult to tell who's who. But look, so they give the number of, of 6,000 to 6,500. Is it 10,000? Is it 15,000? Is it 3,000? The reality is it's a hell of a lot of um, Pakistanis fighting inside. And they give, you, they give you a breakdown of some numbers. They say there's about um, 800 of the Lashkari Taiba, which is and, and 200 of Jaish Muhammad. These are two uh, of the premier Pakistani-sponsored terrorism groups. You know, this report goes da- delves down into details and tells you what district um, and what provinces and districts um, that these uh, th- that these groups where they're operating, um, they say they're in Kunar, Nangahar, and Nuristan is in in some instances. Look, this is wholly consistent with what we know, and you know, back to the the interpersonal relationships and whatnot. 
wholly consistent with what we know. There's been U.S. designations of, of, of al-Qaeda individuals and Taliban individuals who are known to be interlocutors between the two or of al-Qaeda um, members who serve as explosive experts and, and trainers, et cetera, et cetera. Again, this is just another detail. It's just verifying what is already, you know, I've seen some comments where people go, wow, I could have told you this in 2002. Well, you're kind of missing the point. Here it is, is 2020, 18 years later, and this is still happening. And, and the U.S. has its foot out the door while this problem is really just worsening. But, um, you know, look, no one should be surprised about Pakistan's involvement in Afghanistan and, and that its premier terrorist proxies are operating there. And also you have a, the, the ironic thing. And look, uh, I don't want to get into the whole issue of um, the the good versus bad Taliban. That's the paradigm by the Pakistani state where they'll support some terrorist groups but not support others. But the reality is, is the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan has a significant presence inside of Afghanistan. I don't recall the number that the UN report uh, cited, but it's several thousand at least. And they're operating, all these groups, what their UN report says is they're operating under the aegis of the Taliban. Well, how is that so? So you have these groups, uh, like the, the movement of the Taliban Pakistan is enemy of the Pakistani state. They've had run an insurgency that killed tens of thousands of Pakistanis, as well as in multiple terrorist attacks, not just in the Northwest Frontier Province, but throughout the country. And yet the Pakistani state supports the Taliban, the Afghan Taliban, which in turn supports the Pakistani Taliban, which you, Tom, uh, so beautifully described as the wheel of jihad. I'll, I'll, I will thank you for that forever. Uh, this is this is what is happening. It's the you know, the the Pakistani state knows that this is happening, but doesn't care because it furthers their foreign policy goals. They're more interested in the Afghan Taliban um, taking control of Afghanistan than they are with just some pesky movement of the Taliban and Pakistan um, fighters killing the occasional citizen or Pakistani soldier. It's just not a big deal to them. And that just shows the the uh, complicity or the, the duplicity of the Pakistani state. And it, But again, you know, I'm going to re- reiterate, these groups do not operate inside of Afghanistan without the direct support of the Afghan Taliban. Yeah, you know, these, this UN monitoring team or, or various iterations of these UN monitoring team have pointed this in the past that there are all these different foreign terrorist groups operating under the, the umbrella of the Taliban. Um, and that's easy to document through the years and it's easy to document now. Uh, I mean, if you can't get the precise details of it, there's certainly multiple reports of uh, that you can point to to show what this has been going on for a long time. Um, you know, obviously we have a lot of people who are invested in playing disconnect the dots and pretending this isn't going on. But, uh, you know, the facts are what they are, regardless if you want to have Afghanistan or not. And there's one other part of this report I thought we could talk about here, which I thought was interesting, because it goes to something you and I have speculated about privately to each other before talking about this type of stuff. Um, and it was talking about the ISIS presence. This report, yes. monitoring team, talks about the ISIS presence in Afghanistan and says that ISIS Horasan uh, remains capable of mounting attacks in various parts of the country, including Kabul. But some of those claimed may have arisen wholly or partly from a tactical accommodation with the Haqqani network. Well, that's interesting. Now, again, you know, 
look, there's no way we're going to be able to verify this at this point. You're going to need some sort of new intelligence or evidence to verify this. But you and I have looked at some of these operations for years and have wondered, you know, if the Connies and Taliban and Al-Qaeda are playing a little double game and are allowing some of these these rough, particularly egregious and awful terrorist attacks that are going on in Kabul to sort of at least turning a blind eye to them or helping them in some way because it serves their interest to destabilize Kabul, but they don't want the blowback or the perception that they were behind it. Yeah, and so keep in mind that many of the members of the Islamic State's Urson province were either members of the Afghan Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban, al-Qaeda, or the Islamic uh, movement of Uzbekistan. So these guys have historical ties. So yes, the, the Afghan Taliban particularly and the Islamic State are enemies. But at the very, we discussed this a little bit more in detail, I believe it was last week, but at the very tactical level, at the, at the, the level of a district, say, these guys know each other, and they may support each other. And I th- look, I am convinced, and I, again, I can't prove it, it's just a theory of mine, that while the Islamic State is an enemy of the Afghan Taliban, at some level, they've recognized the importance of the Islamic State um, in delegitimizing the Afghan government. The Islamic State conducts the attacks the Taliban can't or won't do, butchering children in a hospital, even though it's never been claimed very likely an Islamic State operation. Uh, the bombings in mosques. Well, guess what? Those bombings in mosques used to happen under the Taliban um, or the Islamic movement in Uzbekistan. Both of those groups were doing them before the, the formation of the Islamic State. I could point to you. Oh, Bill, you just mentioned the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan. It just brings up a whole other disconnected dots nonsense we're going to deal with at some point. Where Remember, they were not supposedly in bed with al-Qaeda and the Taliban at the same time. There's a whole right. nonsense about that. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's it, 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 exactly. I mean, you know, but that's the, that's the, the battles that we fight, the, the disconnect, the daughters. So... Look, at the end of the day, I don't think the Islamic State can operate in places like Kabul and and in other areas where these – primarily in Kabul where these attacks are being claimed. Also, Nangarhar province is, is another big area where the Islamic State operates. I just don't think they can do it at this stage without um, the, the Taliban either looking the other way – or giving them tacit approval to do so. And, you know, look, the Haqqani Network, now think of this, keep, keep in mind the Haqqani Network, um, which of course is an integral part of the Taliban, Sirajuddin Haqqani, of course, is the, uh, one of two deputy emirs of the Afghan Taliban, but it's also a Pakistani state asset. So think about that. Um, the, is, is the Haqqani Network getting direction from Pakistan's uh, Inner Service Intelligence Directorate? to allow these attacks to happen again we're all in the realm of speculation here but i don't think we're talking conspiracy theories when it comes to this we know how things work in this part of the world you know conspiracy theories you know usually begin with some outrageous claim but nothing we're discussing here is outrageous as a matter of fact it's probably it's more likely that we're correct about this than not yeah i mean look i mean by my again i i don't know we you and i have looked at these attacks in kabul and thought Boy, that's curious. You know, some of what's yeah. going on here. Um, you know, some of our sources have, you know, both Afghan and American sources have told us previously, 
um, that they they think that the way that ISIS grew in Afghanistan, we know that ISIS picked off a bunch of different Afghan and Pakistani Taliban commanders. One of the things they did in Kabul specifically was they picked off from the Kabul attack network, which included the Akhani's and Al Qaeda and others. And so, therefore, these are some of these commanders or guys or facilitators who are running this stuff probably were part of the Al Qaeda Taliban fold originally anyway. And so that speaks to the idea you're talking about where they all kind of know each other or some of these guys know each other, you know. Um, now, of course, ISIS K rejects the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. The Taliban's claim for political rule. They definitely have fought each other in Nangarhar and elsewhere. Nobody's denying that. We're not denying that. Um, you know, who knows what the ultimate fate of the ISIS K will be should the Taliban decide eventually that uh, they don't want to put up with this anymore, especially after the U.S. and, and its foreign allies retreat or, or you know leave Afghanistan. But the bottom line is that you know this UN report is saying that the Khanis are either partially or fully facilitating some of these operations, and I, I'd like to see what the evidence is of that for sure. Um, but it's not out of the realm of possibility, is what you're saying and what I'm saying. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I've heard it from intelligence officials uh, from two other countries outside of the United States and Afghanistan that uh, this this sort of thing is happening, that the, the Taliban will look the again. I can't verify this information, but that's what I've heard. Yeah. Well, we I think we'll leave it there. I mean, hopefully... By the time we record the next podcast, things will settle down even more inside our own country. Uh, hopefully, things will be you know, the the violence will have quelled and the rioting will have stopped. Even if there's still peaceful protests, that'd be fine. But just as long as this the craziness is sort of uh, over, that's what we're all rooting for, of course. Here. Uh, again, thank you everybody for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. We'll see you again next week. Excellent. That's muy bueno.